evening in the first three verses of chapter 3, but as background, I think we'll also read verse 28 and 29 that immediately precedes it from chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And now, dear children, continue in him, that is, in Christ, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know uh, that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him, that is, of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, that is, the Lord Jesus, is pure. May God bless to us this passage of his own word indeed. Now this evening, as we return to the book of 1 John, You will remember that we have been studying together in chapter 2 the third great test by which we may know whether we are genuine Christians or not, whether we are found in Christ, in truth, or whether there is within us a merely spurious faith and a mere appearance of Christianity. And you remember that that third test at the end of chapter 2 comprised what I called in the last two Sunday evenings the test of Christian doctrine or Christian theology. But it was not indeed enough for the Christian merely to live a moral and upright life confessing his sins to God and seeking the righteousness of God in Christ, nor was it enough for the Christian to live in love with fellow believers and to avoid the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, and the cravings of the sinful nature, and so on. But John provided that third and rich and very wonderful test of whether God's people are committed to God's truth whether their belief and their doctrine is in accord with the truth as it is in Jesus. And you remember that at the end of chapter 2, John had brought that word of reassurance to the Lord's people that there is an anointing of the Holy Spirit that enables them to know the truth. And as they abide in what they have been taught from the beginning, avoiding novelties of doctrine and newness of experience, then they have the prospect of standing one day in the very presence of the risen and glorified Lord himself. 
Now, why I mention these things to you again this evening by way of summary is that it seems very clear that verses 28 and 29 at the end of chapter 2 are, in a sense, a parenthesis or a pause that leads from one section of John's writing into the next section. And as you look at that, I think you can see that it is so. In verse 28, he reminds us that as we continue in the truth of God and under the anointing of the Spirit, so we will be able to stand unashamed in the presence of Christ when he is revealed. And that in turn leads to the thought in verse 29 that when he appears, we need to be very sure that we bear the marks of the children of God. And those marks of being born of him or being a child of God is that we continue to do what is right. In other words, that we bear the family likeness of Christ who is the firstborn among many, <clears throat> among many brethren. Now, that immediately leads John into surely one of the three richest series of verses in the whole of this very rich letter. At the beginning of chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, it seems as though this thought of standing as children of God in the presence of Christ in that day leads him to contemplate the love of God, as the parenthesis or the pause continues. So not only are verses 20, 28 and 29 a connecting theme and almost a parenthesis in the argument of the letter, but verses 1 to 3, which are our subject tonight, continue that lovely and rich parenthesis in John's mind. They bear to us the theme of love, the love of God. And just as chapters 1 and 2 have dwelt, you remember, on the theme of light, so the remaining part of the letter deals with the theme of love. And these three verses are such a rich and wonderful introduction to that whole theme. Now, it may be of interest to you that in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of 1 John, in 58 verses, in, in, in fact, the word love occurs more than 40 times, 25 times as a verb, 16 times as a noun, and 5 times as an adjective, 58 times in all, in the three remaining chapters, the theme of love superabounds. Now, as I say, I want to look with you at these three verses this evening. They are the introduction to all the rest of the letter, in a sense, with its theme of love. And you'll notice that I've taken three things this evening from those three verses. First of all, that John is bringing to our attention that we are children of God, though so deeply unworthy of being so. You look at that in the first part of verse 1 of chapter 3. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us that we should be called the children or children of God. 
Now, when you think of it, it's really an astonishing statement that John is making. I want you to think of John for a moment with me. An old man by this time that he wrote this letter. A letter that dates probably 50 years from the time of the resurrection of Christ. And John, even if he were a young man as we believe him to be during the ministry of Christ, is now an elderly man of at least 70 and possibly even older than that. A man who had been with the Lord Jesus Christ from his earthly ministry from the start of it, who had walked and talked with the Lord Jesus, who had seen his miracles and his mighty works, who had experienced the crushing disappointment of the crucifixion at Calvary, who had known the exaltation of Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day, a man who had been there at Pentecost with the other disciples when the Holy Spirit was outpoured with great glory and power, a man, moreover, who had witnessed the growth of the early Christian church, who had seen the power of God at work all through these years and had pastored a number of congregations. This is the John who is writing these words. He had seen it all. He had been through it all. Yet, do you notice that the truth for John had not become stale? Now that's what I want you to notice as we approach this thought, first of all, of the children of God, even though we are so unworthy of being called this. Here is an old man who can hardly contain himself when he contemplates afresh at the end of his life what has happened to him and to the whole church of God. Behold, he says, what manner of love is this? But the Father has made us his very own children. And the word, you see, what manner of love or how great love in the NIV is literally from what country in the original Greek. And it's as though it conveys to us the thought that John is stretching for terms to express to us the inexpressible as he contemplates the privilege of God in calling us in love the very children of God. Where does this come from, he says, this immense, indescribable privilege? From what country does it come to us? It is simply something for which we have no parallel in our world. It's as though it has come to us from out beyond. Now do you see what John is leading us into with this very rich thought? It's quite interesting to me as a student of the Greek language that that Greek term, how great or what manner of, is only used a few other places in the New Testament, such as in Matthew 8.27, when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and he had just calmed the storm with those words, be silent to the storm. And they said in awe 
as the troubled waters of the lake became calm and the wind became still and all was peaceful again, they said, what manner of man is this? But even the wind and the waves obey him. It's the same word, you see. As they said to themselves, this is something for which there is no parallel in this world. It defies human explanation that a man can have such power and authority as this. And so, you see, John is leading us into the mystery and the wonder of the love of God. And when you and I begin to grasp this, when we see it aright, we should have the same response in our souls to sink down in adoration and wonder that God so loves us as to call us children of God, even though we are so unworthy. Now let me explore this a little further with you uh, this evening before we leave this point of becoming children of God by the love of God in spite of our unworthiness. Surely there are three specific acts that God has done to us in his grace by which he makes us his children. And these acts should lead us in our inmost soul to be able to say with the aged apostle, Behold, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God who will one day stand in the presence of God himself. What are these three great acts? Well, you notice that he's already mentioned one of them at the beginning of chapter 2, if you turn back to it for a moment. And it's the thought of propitiation. In chapter 2, verse 1, if anybody's sin, we have an advocate, Jesus, the righteous one, who in verse 2, and that is the verse I was looking for, is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins. Now, you see, part of the wonder of our having become the children of God is that this is not by nature. It's not a natural process by which we become sons of God at all. You know, we're living in a day and an age when I think the world has hijacked the concept of children of God for itself and taken away for the true children of God something of its meaning. The world says, of course, we're all children of God. There's one great father and all the nations are brothers together. And the concept of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man has been banded about for generations. And so today nearly everybody thinks of himself as a son or a child of God in some sense, if they have any belief in God at all. Now you see, what we are dealing with here, beloved, is the very opposite. And this is the wonder of it. This is not what Jesus taught at all. What Jesus taught is the very opposite, that we are by nature children of wrath. And as Paul says in Romans 8, those that are in the flesh that are not regenerated by the Spirit of God and have come into newness of life, they cannot please God. And here is the amazing thing. John says we have an advocate with the Father. 
We have an offering, an atoning sacrifice, the shedding of Jesus' blood, the making possible of that which is impossible naturally. But God has given his only and unique son that in the astonishing mystery of his atoning love, he has made it possible that we who are separated from God and dead in trespasses and sins should be brought near to him and taken into his very family as our sins are propitiated or atoned for. Now, no wonder Wesley can say in one of his hymns, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued, and so forth. Propitiation should make us stand in wonder and awe that we have become children of God because of its fruits. But you notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, there's another reason why John stands amazed because of our unworthiness. God has called us his children, verse 1. Behold what manner of love this is, that we are called the children of God. Now what does that say to us? Again, it reminds us of the same truth, that what God has done is not something natural but something that is supernatural. It's not by nature. It's by grace. God has come to us in our sin, and he has said you have become a chosen son or daughter of mine. We are called the children of God. God has adopted us as well as propitiated our sins. And you know, I think in these days when the right to life movement is saving so many young children's lives, we are in a particularly privileged position to realize something of this. How often have you read in the newspaper the announcement, the chosen son of so-and-so, and giving the child's name as well as the parents after it? as various Christian families have taken children that would have been destroyed and outcasts and have adopted them into their own families with all the privileges of a Christian and a godly upbringing. And this, beloved, is what God has done. And this is the wonder of it. He has taken us on the behalf of his own son and given us all the rights and privileges of a natural-born child. And Paul puts it, you remember, in Romans 8, and some of you came through those studies in Romans 8 with us in our Bible study on Wednesday evening. Paul says we have become co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. And it's a most daring thought, as though we are almost on a par with Christ. And he owns everything. Isn't that amazing? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, propitiated for us, adopted us into his family. There's another wonder in this, when you think of our unworthiness, that we have come into these privileges by regeneration. And we've read of that in 1 John, 
verse 29, immediately preceding chapter 3. We are born of him, and if we are born of him, John says, we need to live righteously as God himself is righteous. But the thought is that of being born of God. So not, our, no, not only are we chosen, not only is our sin propitiated, but we are born by regeneration into God's family. And the difference between adoption and regeneration is that adoption confers the privileges of sonship on God's children, but regeneration, mark you, confers the nature to those children. And isn't it wonderful, as God has drawn us into his family, he has given us a new nature by regeneration so that we truly are able to reflect the family likeness. And you know, it's a wonder of his grace, isn't it? Unlike human reproduction, where all that we can do is pass on the same nature, generation after generation after generation. I wish I could look at my children and say, they will be better people than their parents. But I know that apart from God's grace, that cannot be. But when God acts in regeneration and the new birth, he transforms our very nature to be like his own divine nature. And that's why John is so moved. Behold, what manner of love is this that God should call us his own children. Now do you see what I'm saying to you? We are so unworthy of these things. It's not by right or by nature. John and all the apostles realized far more than we do today the privileges, immense, indescribable, of becoming the children of God through a love that has broken into this world from beyond and has drawn us through Christ to God himself. And that sense of wonder, in a sense, you know, is an index of where we are in the Christian life. If that has become stale to you, my dear friend, you are in great spiritual danger indeed. Now look secondly at the thought arising from verses 1 to 3, which is that we are children of God, though unrecognized. And you have that at the end of verse 1, where John says to us, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now it's truly astonishing what God has done, isn't it? It would be unbelievable if anyone other than God had said it. But he has taken us into his own family. The creator of all, the vast spheres of the universe that we cannot comprehend today. The earth, a mere speck amid the revolving orbs. And man, as it were, almost an insect on the planet. God the eternal and man, limited by time, a creature of a few years only. God who is holy and perfect in all his ways and man who is sinful. He takes him 
and puts him in the place of immense privilege. Now you see, the point that John is making is that this is incomprehensible to men of the world, to the unregenerate, to sinful mankind. And even when the Creator himself became man and walked on this planet, these same men failed to recognize him as he came in the garments of humility and purity and holiness. And the great Creator of all walked creature-like upon the earth. They did not recognize him either. It was incomprehensible to sinful man. Now think with me about what John is saying there. There are really two things. He's saying that the Christian will never be recognized and accoladed by the world. Are you a child of God this evening? Have you come to faith in Christ? Well, let me tell you right away that the world isn't going to make a fuss of you. The world isn't going to recognize you or applaud you because you're a Christian. Why? Because the world, you see, is looking for something else. And this can be very disconcerting for Christians at some times. As the world looks at the Christian and says, You, a child of God? How can that be? The world is looking for wealth and fame and prestige and impressive things, as we've seen. Things that John has already described as the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the desire to be something in the world and have a reputation. And the world comes to us and says, You, a child of God, how can you expect me to believe that? Because the true children of God in every age have always walked with humility and have never generally been the great ones of this world or this age. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, not many noble, not many mighty, not many of noble birth have been called to Christ. So the world does not recognize us just as it did not recognize the Lord Jesus. Did he not say in the midst of his ministry as the master is, so the servant will be? And 1 John 2 verse 16 has already reminded us what the world is looking for and will recognize. And it is blind to the glories of the children of God. Now let me say to you that you should not be surprised by this. It is completely predictable. We are the church of God. We have been adopted into God's family. We will be hated by the world because we are in the image of Christ whom the world did not recognize. And rather than be disconcerted and discouraged, we should be encouraged But as they treated the master so, they will treat the servant. And as they rejected his claims so, they will reject yours. But you see, the second thing that he tells us about our not being recognized in this world is that nevertheless, 
we as believers can understand and measure something of this love of God to us that the world is a stranger to. Do you notice there in verse 1 that he says, this is what we are. Though utterly incomprehensible to unregenerate men, nevertheless it can be understood and begun to be measured by the children of God. Yet this is what we are, says John. And surely it is in line and in parallel with what Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19, when he says, I'm writing to you that you may be able to comprehend or understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. We can know in our own experience something of the privileges of being the children of God and the immensity of the love of God to us. We can begin to grasp, for instance, its length that God so loved the world that he gave his own son. Its breadth that Christ came and spent himself for a sinful humanity. Its depth that Jesus went even to the pains of hell itself, its height, but he has brought us to experience the everlasting purposes of the Father. And you see, this is what we can begin to know even here. Now isn't that a wonderful thought? This is, John says, what we are even though it is incomprehensible to the world around us. Now let's pass on as I draw to a close this evening to the third thought that is in these three verses. Not only are we children of God in those first two senses that I have described, but we're children of God even though God's work in us is still unfinished. And you have this thought in verses 2 and 3 where John says, Now are we the children of God, but what we shall be has not yet been made known to us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, the Lord Jesus, is pure. Now, there's two great points that I want to take out and so come to a close this evening. John is telling us that we are not all that we are going to be. Now, do you notice that there? We do not know what we shall be yet, John is saying. What we shall be has not been made known to us. And here is a wonderful thought that he would bring, I think, to our attention and to our minds. We are the children of God now in this world. But we are not yet all that we shall become. In other words, the sense of this relationship with God as his children is so overwhelming to the aged apostle but he says, not only are we to contemplate it now in this world, 
but we are to think eagerly of what it means in the world that is yet to come. What lies ahead of the Christian should fill him with a sense of glorious privilege and anticipation. It's the same juxtaposition of thought as in Romans 8, where you remember I reminded you of Paul telling us that we are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him, and that the whole creation is groaning and travailing together, awaiting the day in which the sons of God will be revealed. The same thought. And so what John is telling us is a day is coming when Jesus will appear, and when he appears, there will be a transforming effect for God's children. They will be made like him. And it is a mystery. What exactly we will be, we do not know. And how true that is. What kind of resurrection body we will have. What will be the glory of the soul reunited to the body, dwelling in absolute and uninterrupted fellowship with God in a person who is altogether made righteous with no remnant of sin remaining in him or her. What we shall be is not yet made known to us. There is a mystery about it. But what we do know is that we shall be like him. Now isn't that something for which we should long with anticipation. And it is, as Paul reminds us, a mystery that the very sight of Jesus will be a transforming experience and we will be able to see and to apprehend at a level that is impossible in this life. And beloved, if the Christian life is wonderful here, and it is wonderful, as we grow in grace and in understanding of the scriptures and appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit and see the loveliness of Christ, what will it be in that day of clear vision and comprehension of Christ in his glory with nothing between? And we shall be transformed, says John, to be like him. But the second thing is this, that if that is true, you notice in verse 3, what are we doing now? And the answer is that we should be purifying ourselves. My dear brother, let me close with this thought. Our time has gone. If you are a child of God this evening, if you have become conscious, at least in some dimension, of the privilege the Father has bestowed upon you in calling you a child of God, in what direction is your life moving now? Because what John says to us here is that if you are running in the opposite direction, you need to question seriously if you are a child of God at all. And he says, if you have this hope within you, 
that God's love has been set upon you and you have been called into his fellowship and the glorious prospect is before you of being transformed into the very likeness of Christ, the direction of your life should be tending toward that goal while you are living here on earth. And that's why scripture, I believe, in a real sense, tells us that the direction in which we spend the rest of our eternity is determined by the direction in which we are moving here on earth. Because where we have begun here is where we are going to continue hereafter. Let me draw these things, if I can, to a quick conclusion. What privileges are ours here? You know, it's a mighty thought that the apostle is bringing to us and privileges end in responsibilities. He that has this hope purifies himself. And when you think of where we once were and where we are now, is it not the most powerful incentive of all to purify ourselves as he is pure? as we consider what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think of these things this evening, our hearts are filled with wonder. We bless the Lord for this great love and this great status and this great motivation to purify ourselves as he is pure. May it ever work in our lives. May we ever anticipate that vision of glory when we shall see him as he is and we shall be like Jesus. Amen.